Welcome to the Monster Podcast. This is Justin. I'm here with... Hello, everybody. This is Jay. And uh, this is episode four, and we're going to bring the conversation back to hands-on collecting today. We've spent the last couple episodes discussing kind of the history of the set, what makes it so important, but today we're going to get into the different ways to collect it, and uh, in our estimation, the most economical way to put together what for most people is going to be the complete set. Exactly so. So first off, I'm going to apologize that you're stuck with just the two of us today. We don't have any fancy guests, but um, I think this should be a really interesting conversation about just sort of the how to put this set together. As we talked about in the first episode, it is a monstrous project and many excellent collectors decide that they only want to do a subset of the set, a team, a condition, just the Hall of Famers, just a back, etc. But today we're going to talk a little bit about how to put together the entire monster, all 520. We're going to leave the four aside, but put together an entire 520 and we're going to throw some numbers at it and throw some theory at it and just try to give a little bit of guidance how someone who's starting the monster today can have one fully done in, say, a year or two just depending on your budget and depending on how much how much money you want to throw at the project and how much time you want to throw at the project and sometimes this emerges kind of organically i think when i started collecting i wished that one day i put together the whole set but didn't know if it was realistic or not and the more time i spent with it the more time i learned about the set i saw that it was uh, achievable even if it was going to take a lot of time and I mean, to put together a set at the kind of the price points we're going to talk about today, it's going to be a considerable considerable amount of work. But of course, in the end, you're accomplishing something that very few other people are ever going to accomplish. Exactly. And I, you know, Justin and I have both put together a number of, you know, 50s sets, you know, other sets from when we were a kid, 80s, 90s. And, and I think one of the big differences with the T206 set in and of itself is it's not something you can take a shortcut to. Are there lots of 100 cards that you can come across and buy? Yes, absolutely. But those cards are never at a discount even though you're buying them in a group. Quite often, they're actually more expensive than the cards individually simply because dealers and collectors really place a premium on being able to purchase that many cards in one place. So... And to that end, it's not a set you can really shortcut. So our conversation today is sort of going to look at things at a very granular level. It's going to look at things, you know, a little bit card by card and just to discuss how you might want to allocate your money. Yeah. And from in my personal collecting experience, I did start out just by buying what was affordable to me at the time. And when I started, that was $10 commons. And that eventually became more uh, scarce cards and more valuable cards, but I started just kind of with what was convenient at the time, and I think that is still a way people can start: is see what's at, you know, see what's immediately available, start chipping away, and then see where you want to put your focus as you build the set. But Jay's put together some really great figures and a strategy for putting together the full set that I think, <clears throat> for a lot of people, even if it took them, to be fair, twenty years to do it, they're gonna get there. Exactly. I, I, I think this is this is a blueprint, but it's not a shortcut. So there are still a, a, an infinite number of ways to you know, take some of this information and try to put the set together from there. 
But I think this should provide some people with, you know, what what is the path that they want to take? Do you want to start with Hall of Famers? Do you just want to be opportunistic and buy all of the cards that fit your budget, which I have a couple friends that are doing exactly that. They've decided I want to spend this much for a common and this much for a Hall of Famer. And as those cards come up, they're willing to spend within that budget and are pretty rigid with going above that number. That's sort of the strategy that I did. I was looking to knock out some of the bigger cards, but once I knocked out the bigger cards and was left with, you know, random Hall of Famers, some some short prints, and then just commons, I, I, had, a, I had a strategy. I knew I was going to spend no more than 20 or 25 bucks on a halfway decent looking common, and then if it was in that range, I bought it, and if it was above that range, I didn't buy it. And I think that really is one of the, the best pieces of advice to, to provide to someone just starting out on that path. Come up with a strategy and then really adhere to the strategy. Unless something is really, really special, there isn't a reason to deviate from what you have decided is your path. Yeah, I think there's only a tiny handful of cards in the big scheme of things. Again, if we're thinking about a complete collection of T206s, something no one ever does, we're talking about 5,500 cards there's really only a small handful of those cards that are you might only see once. Usually, you're going to see something. It might not be the right time for you financially or otherwise. Uh, you'll see that card again. Sometimes you'll see something that you want to hop at at the moment. Um, but again, I think this is a great strategy that we're going to lay out. Jay's word, maybe a blueprint, is even more appropriate for how you can put together the monster. So to start throwing some numbers at things, I, I have in front of me a spreadsheet, which I'm more than happy to share with anyone. I called it the $25,000 set spreadsheet, and it basically is um, a way to apportion 25000 bucks to fill in a 520 set. Now, obviously, it goes without saying 25000 bucks is a lot of money. It's a lot of money just to denote to card collecting. But to think about it practically, that's basically 1000 bucks a month for two years. That's 500 bucks a month for four years. And, and those are figures that I think a lot of collectors could really put forth. It's just, you, you know, you keep focused. When I was putting the T206 set together, I wound up jettisoning some other sets that I was trying to do as well, just because it, it was a really big commitment. So if someone were to, say, spend $500 every month for four years and, you know, follow this blueprint. And of course, valuations may may change, go up, go down over that time period. I just think it's important to realize that while the set does seem insurmountable, I hear really often that it's just too much money or it, it's too many cards. I think I hear the too much money more than the too many cards. I just think, you know, a, a lot of collectors spend several hundred dollars a month on things. And then at the end of the month, they wind up with cool stuff. But I just want to highlight that if you really do adhere to a project, to a blueprint like this, you really can get yourself to filling in the full 520 monster. Yeah, and I know we haven't talked about this yet, and we will on future episodes. There are an increasing number of people who are looking at investment in pre-war cards, including T206s, uh, as an investment. So if you think about how much money you're putting aside for the future, whether it's in a 401k or a savings account there are some indications at least in the past several months for example that some cards including some of these cards in the t206 set and we'll discuss some of them are performing significantly better than the stock market um, and there's indications that that will continue to be the case at least for some parts of the set so again you might not only want to look at this as investing whatever amount you want to per month 
in a hobby, um, but think of it as an investment that could pay dividends later on for you. That 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 definitely is the case, and I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at collecting. You you can just view it as money that you're spending on an awesome hobby that you're never expecting to see again, because that could very well be the case. Or it could be something where you're looking to spend some money and you might look to get the money out of it in a couple of years when you want to move on to another project, when you need a car, when your kids go to college, anything like that. But, you know, in the general sense, these are really strong assets. They are increasing. And I think T206s really have nowhere to go but up. So I'm going to get started with um, the first sort of grouping of cards. Uh, the first two that I, I want to highlight are the Demet and O'Hara St. Louis variations. They, they only come with polar bear backs. They're very difficult. They're sort of viewed as card number five and card number six in terms of scarcity after the big four. Um, they're expensive and they're kind of honestly crappy to stomach the fact that you got to spend a thousand bucks on a card of someone you've never heard of before um and i'll just say for people who are new to this set demet owen and o'hara uh ray demet and bill o'hara cards are particularly rare because these were players who were traded mid t206 production uh and only a limited number of their cards on the new team they were traded to were only produced in short in small quantities so they've become scarce again, as Jay mentioned. Unless you collect T206s or are an enthusiast of pre-war baseball, you've never heard of these players. They never did anything remarkable. But unfortunately, to some degree, they are a you know a kind of a crown jewel of the T206 set. And if you're going to put together the 520, you kind of have to get them. You do, and it, again, it, it sort of leaves an unenviable taste in your mouth that you got to spend a thousand bucks on this guy that no, you know, he doesn't carry the name panache of a Ty Cobb, which I think more people are willing to spend a thousand bucks to get, you know, a, a low grade Ty Cobb card. But I think they are an important part of the set. I know several people interested in just doing a five eighteen to leave those two out, but I think those are. Two cards that are interesting to highlight from the start, I think, in in low grade, so say call it a grade one or a one and a half or an equivalent, you know, raw low card, something that is presentable but not trimmed, you know, could be pretty with one key defect to keep it to a one. I think that will um, honestly hold true for most of the cards that we're going to talk about today. We're looking at cards that will grade a number. The number won't be especially high because there is a defect. You can decide which defects are okay with you and which ones are not. Some people are fanatical about centering or no writing or back damage or none to all of the above or yes to all of the above. But I think this entire blueprint for a set will get you a quality card that would grade at least a one and depending on how hard you work can be better or show up with better eye appeal. So the Demet and O'Hara to start with, probably between eight hundred and a thousand bucks. I've got them logged for eight fifty each in the spreadsheet. Yeah, and I think that's based on the prices I've seen. The range is about between seven and a thousand for the basically the lowest grade example of either one of those. Again, not everyone collects these cards. Some people are staunchly opposed to spending any money on them because they don't feel like they're worth the investment. You could buy a Ty Cobb for the same price. Um, which you should probably do. Yeah, which is <laughs> financial. That's a better investment of your money. You're going to see more of an increase. But um, on the flip side of this, the counterparts of both of those cards, the non-rare ones, could in a low grade could be had for 15 to $20. And some people just get a reprint of the scarcer one, and that'll be the, the kind of the space filler in their set 
but that's what I do with Honus Wagner, for example. I know I'm never going to have the real one, so I just get a pretty reprint and put that in the, uh, in the binder, as it were. So Demet and O'Hara, I think that's a great place to start. So after Demet and O'Hara, we're going to look at what we sort of colloquially refer to as the next 16. Yeah, so just so people know, uh, we're starting here kind of with the most sought-after and rarest cards and working our way backwards. Exactly. I, um, there's going to be a few cards that I think are worth, you know, briefly discussing on their own. And then we're going to get to the commons, which will be, you know, a group of 300 plus cards that will be similar prices for all of the cards. There's a couple that are worth more and some that might be worth a little bit less just because. But, you know, in the general sense, I think it's important to discuss the cards that live on their own. So after the Demet and O'Hara, this group of next 16 comprises the big stars of the era, the biggest stars in the set. They were the best players. They're the ones that still carry the best name recognition today. And of course, those cards are worth the most. So those players are Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Cy Young, Christy Mathewson, Nap Lajoie, and Tris Speaker. So it's six cards. They have 16 poses in the set. And a good portion of the spend of the money is really going to go to those 16 cards. So I think it's worth briefly discussing all 16 individually, and then a couple we can sort of lump together. So Ty Cobb comes, there are four Ty Cobbs, two portraits and two action poses. There's the green portrait, red portrait, bat on and bat off. The green portrait is by far the most valuable. It's the rarest it's it's a pretty good looking card. I think the bad off is better looking, but it is um it is a great looking card. It's the best portrait in the set, and um it's one of the rarer Hall of Famers. So right off the top, the green cob is sort of its own thing. In today's market, that's going to cost two thousand bucks. There's really no two which ways around spending two thousand dollars on a green portrait. And honestly, that might even be a little bit low. Just sort of depends on 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 where the market falls. But I I think with some effort and some looking, I think you could find a green portrait for about two thousand dollars. I think that's right. Um, the two action poses, the bat on and bat off are really, really great cards. The bat on shoulder is much tougher. I think the bat off shoulder is sort of that classic T206 look with amazing colors. You really can see Cobb's drive to succeed in that pose. And I, I have slotted both of those cards for about a thousand bucks each, which I think should get you, you know, one or a pretty decent raw card. I have bought countless ones and raw cards of those poses in, in, in around that that price range but I, I don't really think you can expect to spend too much below a thousand dollars for a cob and then the red portrait which is by far the most plentiful one i have slotted for eight hundred dollars it is on the uptick currently but i would say that card is so plentiful with some effort. I think that card can be found under $1,000. But that said, if you find one you like, I think $1,000 is a perfectly reasonable spend on that type of a card. Yeah, I think that's true for all cobs. Yeah, I think I think that's sort of the plateau. That if you're looking to spend money on a cob, you probably are going to need to have $1,000 lying around ready to spend on a card. Yeah. I, I mean, th- I've seen, you could, you can get one that's missing. I mean, a highly trimmed one with maybe laminated some writing on the back, you know, the, the worst condition maybe you can find for five or six, but those very rarely come up. 
Um, they tend to sell really quickly when they yeah, do. Yeah, and they also. sell quickly. So I think there's always going to be exceptions to any rule here. You're going to be able to find one for more or less than we're talking about. Um, but I think the the figures that Jay's come up with are really, you know, kind of hit the sweet spot for each of them. Yeah, thanks. So um, just just a brief recap from the four Cobbs and then the Demet and the O'Hara, which are your six best cards in the set. We're spending in the low 6,000s. So again, this is a $25,000 budget. That means we're spending, you know, in the neighborhood of 20 to 25% of the budget for the entire set on the six best cards. So again, it, it, it gives a reasonable thought process. Do you want to buy those up front? Do you want to wait around and look for the right one? I know many people have bought them at the beginning. Many people have bought them at the end. There's no which right or right or right or wrong way to do that. But I think it's, it's an interesting thing to look at that about 23 or so percent of your budget is going to go to six cards. And some people will, wait till the very end to do those. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to do it. Just keep in mind that they're going to be more expensive by the time you get around to them Prob- at the rate they're going at. Probably. Um, so the, ne- the next grouping of cards, I'm going to actually do the two of them together, are the Walter Johnson and Cy Young cards. There are two Walter Johnsons and three Cy Youngs. They both have a portrait, and then there are three action cards. Um, those cards are really hot right now. They're two awesome portraits, legendary players, um, I think those are cards that you can realistically expect to find in the 400 to $500 range. That's going to get harder and harder on the portraits. So I, it might be prudent for me to adjust the 500 to $500 cost for the portraits up to up to 600. But I think realistically 500 for the portrait, 500 each for the portraits, and then 400 each for the for the action cards, and, and, that, and that's where you are. I mean, these are two timeless players. Cy Young still has an award named after him. You know, Walter Johnson is, in my opinion, the best pitcher ever, and they're really, really good cards, and I think value-wise, those slot in right after the, the, the Ty Cobbs. Yeah, and again, this is for this. all of this applies to people who are going to put together the whole set or who maybe want to focus on the top cards in the set, which would include the Demon and O'Hara, according to some people, but certainly these kind of next 16, which are the the biggest names in the set uh, and the ones that have, a lot, to be frank, a lot more room for growth pricing-wise. Yeah, I think you know even people who are not the most ardent of baseball fans, there's a good chance they've heard the names Cobb, Johnson, Young. I mean, anyone who's ever paid attention to baseball knows about the Cy Young Award. I mean, that that still lives. Um, these were the guys that were elected into Cooperstown the first year. Uh, so Cy Young was the second year. But the first year, 1936, I believe it was, was um, Babe Ruth, Walter Johnson, Ty Cobb, Honus Wagner, and Lajoie, I think. Or no, it was Christy Matthews. And the first five was, was, was included Christy Matthews. And so... You know, those are those are the guys. They are timeless, and these are some of their most well known. And in a lot of ways, they could be some of the most affordable cards for these guys. You know, there are not a lot of under thousand dollar Ty Cobbs floating around. So even if you were just someone who wanted a Cobb card, you can steer clear from the T two O sixes just because they're super well known. But I don't really think of too many Ty Cobbs that I think are similarly desirable cards from the playing days that are, you know, a normal card that you can find for too much less. And that is, again, just thinking about the investment component of this that are liquid. There's some really ugly Ty Cobb strip cards that you can get for less than $500, but they're not nice to look at. You're not going to want to be pulling those out and admiring them. 
uh, and they're tough to sell. Uh, sometimes you get stuck with a card like that, that there's some enthusiasm for you to get it in your hands, and then no one else wants it. So the T206 are, I mean, and people knowing, people who are listening know this, I mean, these are really the gold standard, uh, and that's certainly true for a lot of the most flam- famous players from that era. Ty Cobb sell. When I when I do a lot of I do a lot of sales and when I get in Ty Cobbs, honestly, they go out just about as fast as they come in. I mean, when they're priced right, they move. If they're priced too high, they'll sit. Obviously, I mean, it's still supply and demand in a marketplace. But adequately priced Cobb sell. So after the the Cobb Johnson Young. Um, I think it's prudent to talk about Christy Mathewson, who was a mega star of the era. I think his cards have lagged a little bit behind um, Johnson and Young, but you know Mathewson was a mega star, great role model for kids of the era. They called him the Christian gentleman. He was a good guy in an era where baseball players were not such good guys. Um, he has a portrait and then two two pitching cards, one with a white cap, one with a black cap. The portrait I have down for about $350, so it slots in a little bit less. I have the white cap for $300 and then the, the dark cap for $250. The white cap is dramatically tougher than the dark cap. The dark cap is another one of the very, very common poses. But even so, um, you know, the values are in the low, the low to mid three figures. And when you're giving these values, are these, again, just to remind people of these slabbed cards you're talking about? So what grade would people realistically be looking at for a Matthewson dark cap for $350? Um, so a Matthewson dark cap for $350, I think you could push a two. I think you could even find a cheaper one. I, I have it down here for, for, for 250 in the spreadsheet, which I think can get you a one, maybe a one and a half, or a comparably decent raw card that would grade pretty well. So again, you're going to get a card at these values that will grade, will not be ripped apart unless you want it to be. Um good cards of good quality that, you know, are not going to win a beauty contest, but are really good cards and, you know, have lived an interesting life. After Mathewson, we're left with Lajaway and Speaker. Speaker has only one card, and this card is actually widely considered to be his rookie. Um, People sort of love it or hate it. It's an interesting batting pose where you're sort of looking at him from behind um, I have that card down for about 250. That will definitely get you a one or a one and a half. Um, Speaker's a good card. He was the he was the big star from Boston at that time. You know, Boston has a really really good card collecting following, and I think um, Speaker is still someone that has a lot of records and and was a mega star of the era. Same with Lajaway. I mean, Lajaway, they named a team after him. You can't say that they named a team the Cobbs or the Ties, but they called the Cleveland team the Naps. He was a really popular guy, and these are some cool cards of his. Lajaway portrait I have down here for 250. I think it might take three, 300 to really get one right now. Those cards sell really well. I have the batting card down for 200 and then the throwing card down for 200 so you know again you're getting an elite hall of famer for 200 bucks which i think is is a really really nice sweet spot and is an acquisition to feel really good about i mean that is a good card yeah and i also like to think i like to compare these cards to what modern cards are selling for and if you look at pricing on modern cards right now, they're absolutely out of control for players who won't, are, won't reach the major leagues. 
yeah, either won't reach the major leagues or will be there briefly and get Tommy John surgery and never come back to the perform the way they were. I mean, Shout out to Otani, get well. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly who I had in mind. But, you know, the nice thing with these players, and I said this recently in our Facebook group, is these players are, you know, they're not going to get in legal trouble. They're not going to get injuries. Their record is established. Uh, and the only place we have to go is up with them. Uh, so they're low risk in that regard. Uh, so if people are paying five, ten, twenty, hundred thousand dollars for modern cards right now, for that there's just as many of, as there are some of these older cards from the T206 set. Uh, looking at that in context, I think this makes it seem like T206s, some of them at least, uh, are way undervalued. I think that I, I I think that's very well said. I entirely agree. So. Um... Those are the next 16 cards. We've just gone through 16 cards plus the Demet and O'Hara. So again, these are the 18 best cards in your set. A big portion of your budget is going to go to these cards. So we've spent somewhere between ten dollars and $11,000 so far. So about 40% of your budget is going to go towards the top-end cards. And, you know, it, it's sort of an interesting thing. I think as I'm talking here, I feel a little bit like, you know, an NFL general manager. I'm trying to figure out, does it make sense to spend all my money on a quarterback or do I want five, you know, comparably good players to fill in my roster? At the end of the day, you still need a quarterback. In your set here, you still need some of these big top-end cards, but a really big proportion of the spend happens on a small number of cards. So after that sort of first tranche of cards, those are the six Hall of Famers, the, 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 the big-time Hall of Famer, M MVP candidates of the era. There are 58 other Hall of Famers in the set, and um, those Hall of Famers, I think, range from sort of the fringe guys that you can have an argument about whether or not they belong to some of the really well-known players that are extremely good, well-known players. And, you know, for these 58 remaining cards, I have all of them ranging from 50 to $120. So I don't really think you can find a Hall of Famer for too much less than 50 bucks. But the Hall of Famers that I've got here for 50 bucks are some of the more forgettable ones. And then the Hall of Famers that I have here for 100 or 120 are some of the better players of the era. I think just sort of at a high level, the portraits are always going to sell for a little bit more than the action cards. Even if the action card is, is a little bit scarce, the portraits typically sell for a little bit more. Why do you think that is? I'm just, I've always just been curious about aesthetics. I think it's probably aesthetics. Although to be quite honest, I kind of like the action poses a little bit more myself. I think you see more of the game and the action, whether they're posed or not. I'm not actually even sure. I think they're probably posed, so they're not really playing. But the portraits, they just sort of look like, you know, normal dudes, and it doesn't really give the feeling of playing of the era, the difficulty, you know, the pride. I just see normal guys just sitting there. Yeah, you don't see the equipment, the, grand, uh, the grandstand in the back, the tent with the flags. I mean, there's a lot of fun things about the, the action shots. Um, that make them desirable and there's people who you know that's they collect based on aesthetics only and there's some really great looking commons even that you know aside from the hall of famers that just have fantastic artwork you really get a feel for the game the portraits don't really convey that much about the game sometimes about the player but not the game people really do the portraits they people really really like them they are cool cards i don't mean to demean them at all i just i like to see the the gameplay 
So out of these remaining 58 cards, ranging again from 50 to about 120, we are running a $72 average over a group of 58 cards. So just to throw out a couple names from sort of the top of the pile, I think the the most well-known players in this top pile are the Cubs Hall of Famer, Cub, to, excuse me, the Cubs Hall of Famers, Tinker Evers, Chance, Mordecai Brown, Willie Keeler, Home Run Baker. Um, those are sort of the top of the pile. So those, the portraits of those players, I think, are the ones that I have, you know, looking here at 120. And then some of those action shots for those players I have at about 100. I think you could even find cheaper than some of these numbers, but I think, you know, just sort of to to you know notch in in step with some of the other hall of famers those are 100 120 cards and then you know towards the bottom of the pile the 50 dollar hall of famers i have a big group of 50 dollar hall of famers you know jake beckley george davis flick jennings kelly wallace willis those are sort of what people would consider the, the the lesser tier of Hall of Famers. And I really, really do believe you can find those cards for 50 bucks. And those are probably even going to be nicer than a grade one. I don't think you're going to be able to buy a, a PSA 2 for 50 bucks, but I think you could find a raw card or a really, really sharp looking one and a half, I still think, in the 50 to $60 range. Yeah, and Jay, the Jay's collecting style and mine are a little different. I when we were recording our first podcast, we ended up editing it out, but he referred to his uh, preferred condition as VG-ish, which is much nicer than what I collect. So for these lower grade cards, I think you could even find a Hall of Famer for less than 50 bucks if you want a real beater. And honestly, uh, these are players no one really cares about. <laughs> and they're, you might not want to sink any more money into that because they are not going to get you very much. I think it in terms of enjoyment or invest return on your investment. And one of the things to think about is that if you're talking about a $50 Hall of Famer here and you're able to snag one for 35 bucks just because you're willing to give up a little condition, you're only saving $15, which doesn't sound like a lot in the scheme of things, but that $15 might get you a common. That might get you a second additional card for the same money you would have spent before. And since it is such a large project and there are over 300 commons, however you can sort of figure out a way to get two for one it is a really good strategy, I think. And deciding that, you know, you don't need a Vic Willis to be super nice and here's one that's a little beat up and works for you, I think that's a totally reasonable way to go. Um, my preferred condition, what I sort of jokingly refer to as VG-ish, is a really big range. That sort of encompasses really nice-looking ones and ugly-looking fours, all of which I have in my collection. I have cracked many nice-looking ones out of the holders, put them in my binder, and then when you scroll through it, they look like VG cards. And if you look really, really closely, there's probably a crease somewhere, or maybe there's one little speck of paper loss, or maybe the grader was having a bad day. But if you look at the cards, they still have that eye appeal that I'm looking for and what I think is sort of classic three-level eye appeal. That's just the way I've chosen to do it because for me, that enables me to save money because a pretty-looking one is still going to be a lot cheaper than an ugly three. Yeah. So that pretty much runs the gambit on the Hall of Famers. Um, for those 58 Hall of Famers, that totals up to about 4200 bucks, And that's 74 total cards. That's just the 58, leaving the 16 oh, aside. Okay, if you add in then. the 16, yeah. so for the 74 total Hall of Famers, I'm at 13000 
and then add in another 1700 or so dollars for the Demet and O'Hara. So of, again, of your budget, you're spending about 15 of 25 on your Hall of Famers and two big variations. Yeah, so you've got 60% of the investment just on a very small number on of On 76 cards. And keep in mind, some people stop there. Some people put together the Hall of Fame set. And then that's the end of that's there in terms of their collection. That's so you could stop there if you have no interest in for the sake of it putting the set together. I think there's a lot of pride and excitement personally putting the set together, which is why I've worked on it. Again, it's something so few people do, uh, so it's a it's an exciting accomplishment. Um, but if you just want all the Hall of Famers, stop there. You could save a lot of money and have a you know an impressive set. Exactly. Um, the next group that I think um, is worth discussing are the Southern Leaguers. Southern Leaguers, at the time they were a minor league played in the South, they were played in some really, really interesting cities that do not have baseball teams like Jacksonville or Danville or Montgomery or Mobile. Um, this was a, it was a really good league. Joe Jackson came out of this league, and, and many of these Southern League players either went on to have halfway decent big league careers. A couple of them were actually at the tail end of their big league career and were just sort of hanging on. Um the cards are very difficult. If you look at a scarcity list, the Southern Leaguers basically comprise the slots 10 through 60 in the scarcity list. There's 48 cards, and they're really, really difficult. They are around, but if you're looking for one Southern Leaguer, they're not the easiest single cards to find. I noticed that from having bought a lot of them. They, they show up at times and in little groups, but... If you just set out one day looking for an Ed Foster, that's a really tough card that will be difficult to find. Basically, the way I collect is that if there are deals, I will take, try to take advantage of them and fill as many holes as possible. That might be buying large lots of low-grade cards, um, paying a little more for a card that's tough than I might not see again. Um, the Southern Leaguers, when I, after I had collected for years in a kind of haphazard way like that, when I went and looked what was left... There was a lot of Southern Leaguers. How many Southern Leaguers did you have out of 48 ballpark? Maybe half. Right. And that's what, and that's just organically kind of collecting. And I think that's where a lot of people probably end up if they're not paying attention. I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, to people who have a lot of experience collecting different sets, like the Southern Leaguers to me are kind of like the high numbers in like the 50s or the 60s. There are cards that just are difficult to find, whether the print one print run, excuse me, was lower or... People just seem to forget about that year before moving on to the next year, like I know happened in some of the 50s and 60s. The Southern Leaguers are just sort of, those are the short prints. They're, they're the ones that are kind of tough to find, but that's not necessarily reflected too badly in their value. I gave $55 to every Southern Leaguer, and that will get you a nice one. That'll definitely get you a one or a one and a half or a two. I think two is maybe closer to 70 bucks, but raw, you can find $50 nice Southern leaguers all day. Many of my VG ish Southern leaguers. I know I bought for between 45 and $55. So I think putting a $55 valuation on each Southern leaguer with the exception of Shag Shaughnessy, who I gave a hundred, everyone's favorite Shag Shaughnessy. What um, is the, the people just like his haircut on that card? I think he's got a cool haircut. His yeah. name is really cool. He also had a really fascinating life afterwards. He was like the president of one of the independent leagues. He he had a very illustrious life, but that is just the, the one Southern leaguer that I think always carries a little extra money. You know, Ed Foster's really tough. Ed Reagan's pretty tough too, but Shag Shaughnessy is sort of the, the cream of the crop for the Southern leaguers. And then after that, uh, all, all $55. Um, they're tough. You find them. 
you know, there's some there's some satisfaction with knocking out card number 10 scarcity-wise just because the cards that are single digit below them are are really really expensive for the most part, but I think, you know, I think a 50 to a $55 valuation on the Southern Leaguers is is quite reasonable. So then for the 48 Southern Leaguers, it comes to about $2600, $2700. You know, it's a it's a portion of your total spend, but it's a portion of the spend sort of in step with the portion of your total bankroll. Um those cards nicely grouped together as a little group of 48. Yeah, and now keep in mind, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, all of these prices we're throwing out here are based on common backs. They or are. at least the most common back in the card you're looking for. So the Southern Leaguers, for example. Predominantly come with Old Mill and Piedmont. They do come with Hindus. They're very difficult, as I find myself yeah. on the Southern League Hindu train. Um in, in most cases, the old mill is more desirable for the Southern Leaguers because it's a cool back, and it specifically says old mill Southern Leaguer. Um, that said, though, you can probably find plenty of old mills in that same price range, even though it's a more desirable back. I think if you're looking at a Thai Cobb, even with a plus back, like a Cobb with a Polar Bear is still going to cost a little more than a Cobb with a normal back. Yeah, and... My personal view in my collection, again, I'm, I have a very low-grade set. It's probably a bit of an understatement to say it's very low-grade. Um, I'm often willing to pay a premium for a scarcer back and a desirable card um, because all of that adds up and it makes it a sexier item. Um, but if you don't care about backs, you, in truth, you're only looking at the fronts. A lot of people don't care what the back says, and I get that. Um, this is where you want to be. This, you know, the prices again we're talking about are standard backs, Piedmont, Sweet Capral, uh, and then to some degree Old Mill with the Southern Leaguers. I think you could find a few Polar Bears and Sovers along your path. Oh yeah, absolutely. Within your budget, definitely on Commons, but I think if you find, you know, if you put yourself, which we're going to discuss in a second, on about a seventeen, eighteen dollar budget per Common, if you find yourself a Sovereign that's in decent shape, you know, in step with what you want for that seventeen, eighteen dollars, you know, those are the sort of small victories because those that card's worth a little bit more, and it's it, it adds a little level of coolness and flavor when you have a different back attached to your set. Yeah, and just another way to collect the backs too, just to have a type set, is if you do happen to stumble upon a card that has a back that you don't have yet, even if it's a common. Grab it, and then you can check that box off in your set. Yes, now I have a, a Sovereign 150 or 350. I can move on to the next thing. So, again, there's a million different ways to do this, but, uh, again, we're staying focused on the most common backs here. So the next little group is um, it doesn't have sort of the neat organization that a couple of these other groups prior that we've been discussing have. Um, the first one, we're going to call them the short prints. They're just sort of the, the team variations. The T206s were released over a three-year span, and these are players that switch teams. And you know, in 1909 or 1910, they were traded, got cut, etc., wound up with a new team, and then they made a new baseball card. And it just happens that one of the two cards is much tougher and more desirable than not. There are other players, for instance, that switch teams halfway through, and both cards are you know pretty equal in value, pretty equal in scarcity. But for this next group of cards, they are sort of the toughies. They also rank pretty highly on the scarcity list and at times can be found for uh, they're very expensive. But I also think those are the types of cards that, you know, you might find at a show in a stack if someone doesn't correctly identify a short print or correctly price a short print. 
they are cards that can be found. But again, this is the type of thing where the prize, the ability to, to, to stay close to budget is, is going to wind up with the person who does a little bit of extra work. So just to highlight a couple of the short prints, um, you have the Kid Elberfeld, Washington Portrait, Dahl in Brooklyn, the Lundgren, Chicago, Brown, Washington. You have the Frank Smith, Chicago and Boston, Red Kleinow, Boston. And then a couple other cards that I've just lumped in here is the Joe Doyle, Hands Over the Head, the Sherry Maggie Portrait, and the Titus Mustache. Um, that group, there, there isn't really a thread that carries them all together. Like, Titus is expensive because one guy was hoarding him. And, and he has a mustache. And which it's the is the only card. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to mustaches. Yeah. Um, but I think in the general sense, though, these are just sort of the common players that you don't really care too much about, but are worth discussing because they're going to cost more money. Yeah, there. I just want to say there is the one standout in that group is Bill Dolan, who is actually a good baseball player. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and he it, was. And been considered, the Veterans Committee has considered him, and there's talk that in 2030, the next time they meet, he might be the one, one of the last players who gets in from the pre-war era. Um, but again, as you said, generally those are unremarkable players who have a scarce card. Yeah, and in the way I've priced up these short prints, I basically got them ranging from about 60 to 150 dollars i think elberfeld dalen and lundgren are going to cost you the most and are going to be the most difficult to find um the other ones are around and cost less you know in some spots like this i think there is a key difference between an elberfeld and a kleinow if you look at a beckett i think the prices are relatively similar there's a really really big difference and is one of those things where it's worth consulting this type of a spreadsheet or completed auction sales to really get just some of the nuance about what is the right price to spend for those cards because yeah i just bought the rarer of the kleinows which is the boston yeah. variation Again, it's a beater. It looks like a, a rat probably chewed the corner off a long time ago. It was $25 slabbed in a Beckett slab. Uh, I think it's hard to find the Elberfeld Washington for less than $200. Yeah. and Even, I've, even I, a terrible one. I agree. I've got it in the spreadsheet right here at $150. I, I think it's probably a sell I could have edited to $200. Yeah. I think you probably can find a $150, but it's going to be really, really difficult. The Elberfeld in a two sells for about $500. Yeah. It is a really really difficult to cart to a card to find it's another one of those that if you just set out one day and you're like i'd like to go buy an elberfeld washington it's gonna be a difficult card for you to just set out one day and buy it, it they're just not a lot of them around yeah i would say that unless you're willing to spend over a thousand dollars it's infrequent that you'll even find one on ebay yeah you don't see too many yeah so the, that, that's the little group of short prints. Um, the other group that I have just to set them apart are, I call them stars. They were stars of the era who got suspended. Um, <laughs> this group includes Hal Chase, Chick Gandal, and Eddie Sacati. Um, Gandal and Sacati were part of the Black Sox, so some people really like that because they got suspended 10 years later for throwing the World Series. Um, cool cards, big-time players. And that was, Sacati was the pitcher who... The ring, hit, he was the ringleader. He was the ringleader, hit the first batter in the World Series, and that was the signal to the gamblers that the fix was in. They were going to throw the game. And he was a really, really, really good pitcher. And he actually pitched reasonably all right in that series, and he helped throw it by making like a lot of throwing errors. So he pitched rather well, but just made one or two throwing errors every game, which was enough to throw the series. Um, Sakati and Gandal I have as $75 cards. Um 
you know, sort of right in the middle of the Hall of Famer. I often just post them in with my Hall of Famers group, but alas, they are not because they were suspended. So I'm just going to separate them out so the person doesn't hassle me for them not being a Hall of Famer. Yeah. <laughs> and other... those are cards, I mean, in terms of desirability, think about, I like to think about if I told my wife the story of this player or card, would it be interesting or would she know what I was talking about? Way more people would know about Sakadi and Gandal than would know about probably half of the Hall of Famers. I agree. Even some of the higher-end Hall of Famers. These are guys that, you know, their story lives on because they did... movies made about them. Yeah, and they did something really crappy, so their (laughs) their story lives on. Um, The other person in this group is Hal Chase. Hal Chase has five cards in the set, which is the most. He has one more card than Ty Cobb. He was a huge, huge star of the era, really good first baseman, and he was known as an avid, avid gambler who very often would bet on his own team or against his own team, and uh, he was he was a bookie's friend. He was and was actually friends with all of the bookies. <laughs> he wound up getting himself suspended from baseball in the mid nineteen tens. Um, his cards actually aren't that expensive. The the pink portrait is the best. I have that for fifty bucks, and I have his other four cards at either thirty or forty. They're pretty cheap, but again, cool cards of a really, really big star at the time. He actually has one of my favorite cards in the set. There, one of his five is him holding a trophy. Um, there's lots of stories about what that trophy was or wasn't, because um, it's nondescript in the card. But again, John Titus has his bit of premium for being the only player with a mustache. Hal Chase is the only player in a pose where he's holding a trophy and that's again he was a great player at the time so it's a it's kind of cool card to see him being uh, awarded there yeah actually i wound up doing some research on that trophy recently and there are one or two articles on the internet i don't exactly remember but he did not win that trophy from a baseball um related it was like achievement i i I think he had gotten injured or sick and then someone gave him the trophy when he got back onto the field it's a really interesting story but it's a really really sweet card where he's sort of like proudly holding this trophy it's almost like he won the world series or a batting title and they made a card about it it's it is it is a very cool card so from there we are left with just the commons And from this group of commons, I have in my spreadsheet, there are 379, somewhere in that high 300s, just depending on how you classify certain cards. There's a lot of commons in the set. It's a big set. Um, There are, I want to say, about 50 commons that I took time, about 30 commons that I specifically denoted a different price for just because they're tougher, they're a short print. I didn't think it was fair to put in um, the average common price for these specific cards just because they are a little tougher. So just to sort of look at the commons overall, I put in $17 for every single common for the rest of the set. So that $17 will get you, again, a grade one commons I would recommend doing raw because there's so many of them. And you can find really decent commons for $17. You can find decent commons for $13. They're just going to have issues. But just sort of the average that I thought would be fair to throw in our salary cap for a common is $17. I would say for myself, most of my commons were around $20 to $22. I spent a couple dollars more. And I probably wish that I hadn't. Um, Justin, what do you think your average buy price on a common is? I was thinking about that while you were just talking. There's guys in Tobacco Row right now who have a $10 cap on commons. Yes, they're and, pretty... and, they're, and they're finding cards to buy as well. Yeah, so you could – it takes a little more work, but you could if you if you can tolerate that, that type of condition, which I personally can. 
I think on average I probably spend between $15 and $20 on a common, so $17 is right there in the sweet spot. When I buy things from Jay, usually has something that's a little nicer than I would typically get. Um, but I think in the in the in the big scheme of things, we're talking about about three hundred and how many commons? Three seventy ish. Three seventy five dollars each. That's about two grand either way. So you could, if you really want to save that two grand, you know, stay focused on buying thirteen fifteen dollar commons. But I think uh, you're gonna have a harder time putting a set together. That I way. think that's the case, but I think that really highlights one of these key trade offs where like you save three dollars on every common. That's a free Ty Cobb. That's a good point. And that's a great point. You know, if we're if we're doing this set on a budget, you know, a free Ty Cobb is a really really big deal. So I think the commons are you know a group of cards that you wanna adhere to your budget and really really think about what is the budget that you wanna do for each card. I have a friend right now who's doing the set, and I think he's actually put about a sixteen, seventeen, eighteen dollar cap on buying commons, and he's buying a lot of them. He, he's buying 10, 15, 20 cards a week without any trouble at all because there are plenty of commons out there. And you can even find some small groups of five, six, eight cards where the buy price, the, the per card buy price is, is pretty low. Yeah, and this is, again, it depends how quickly you want to dip your toes in the water because you could certainly pay close attention to what auction houses are putting up and I would say at least on a monthly basis, depending on what auction houses you're watching, you're going to see a pretty large lot of beater commons available. Um, and the prices are usually pretty good, but there is some competition, and you've got to be watching places other than eBay um, to get those cards. But certainly for my set, I've knocked out a few big chunks of commons uh, just by getting big lots that maybe I needed about half of them. Half of them were duplicates, and then I will sell the other half. Um and usually you can make a few dollars on each of them. I know Jay's done that too. Um, but again, it's a good way to knock out a chunk of cards that's I don't find particularly fun to search no, for one by all. one. They're not players I care about. They're cards that are in low grades. They're just, for me, they're not that exciting. Um, so it's good to just get them out of the way. I agree. I still think, though, eBay is probably your best bet for buying commons. There are tons of them going off every single day. And... You gotta find the ones that you like. The one, the the cards sold from the random seller that doesn't have a super strong following. That's gonna be cheaper than the cards from Probstein or from PWCC. So you just sort of have to look around. I think it it, it bears a brief discussion for the commons. Shipping is your enemy. If you're buying a common for $17, $3 shipping is your enemy because that is just a huge percentage of the card to be spending. You know, when I sell commons, I give the buyer the option to either spend a dollar or $3 to just stick the card in a regular envelope with a stamp or to stick it in, you know, a package with, you know, secure cardboard. Most people usually choose the plain white envelope just because those couple dollars you save, as we said, can add up to a Thai Cobb. So I think as you're looking at the $17 common, if that's where you decide you want to be, $17, $18, you've got to get shipping included in that, which really makes buying small groups, again, your friend. Yeah, included or combined. Combined yeah. shipping combined is another Combined shipping, and, and don't be afraid to write to sellers on, if you're looking at eBay, asking them if they'll combine shipping. Sometimes they don't say they do, but they will. They should. Um, but, yeah, they should. It, yeah, it is it is good practice, too. Um, and you do blow your margins quickly. The You know, you're, save, you're getting a good deal on something. Maybe you're getting a $15 common. As soon as you have to pay the shipping, you're not getting a deal anymore. You might be paying more than you should be. Uh, don't be afraid of raw cart. When we're talking about these commons, I think – 
at least I'm talking about raw cards. I'm only here. talking about raw cards for commons. Yeah, I know some people are afraid of raw. Um, for commons, you don't have to worry too much. Once you get a little sense of what the cards look like and what you know, you shouldn't be paying fifteen dollars for something that looks nice. Some fifteen dollars should get you something that looks pretty terrible. Um, when you get up into those other cards that Jay was talking about, you have to be a little more wary. Yeah, and I think we could definitely do, uh, and it would be a really interesting discussion about how to spot fakes. And yeah. this call, let's call them fakes, reprints, and forgeries, which I think are all very slightly different. Yeah. Um, there are no good forgeries of commons. The ones that I've seen are truly, truly bad. Once you've handled a couple cards or looked through a couple listings, those should jump out at you. I've seen some rather decent Cobb forgeries, but in the common department, I think, you know, you're a little bit more worried about a card that's trimmed than a card that's fake. But again, a card that's trimmed is not such a bad deal for $17 if the rest of the card looks decent. If you want a set that doesn't have a trim card in it, totally reasonable, but I still think you should feel very confident about buying cards on the internet. I think also in the social media age, one of the best things that is your friend is building up a community of friends that you can shoot a listing to and just say, does everything look kosher here to you and get an affirmative or a no? And that's something that you can definitely do on a common that rubs you the wrong way or a seller who has 30 commons. Do these in aggregate look legit or are they all trimmed? Because I can think of a the answer is usually, let's say, the answer is usually yes or no. It's, it's very rare that an experienced T206 buyer is going to look at something and say, I'm not sure. Usually the answer is very clear. Yeah, and two good places to start, and both of these are um, destinations that are closed, but you apply to get in. Uh, Tobacco Row on Facebook is one of those closed groups uh, where there is some vetting just so people who are scam artists don't end up in there. Um, so Tobacco Row on Facebook and Net54.com, Net54Baseball.com is a great message board. Not only can you buy and sell on the, and trade in these forums, but these are great places, as Jay was saying, where you could post a photo of something you're considering buying, a $20 card or a $20,000 card, and ask people their feedback. Does this look right to you? And that several times a week, sometimes several times a day, people will be in there putting eBay listings, asking if things look kosher, and people are happy to help. Um, I've found that this is one of the most friendly and supportive communities, almost to the detriment where someone who's collecting the same card as you will go out of their way to help you buy it. <laughs> yep. And even if it's putting it out of touch for them, so out of reach for them. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Don't be afraid to ask people for feedback. But Jay, generally when we're talking about this set going from the, um, the next 16 and O'Hara down on, when you figured out these prices, did you figure slab pricing for the higher end cards? or I sort of just picked what I thought was the middling number. I really like raw cards probably more than most. And I have bought raw cards, you know, all the way up to Cobb. Very, Why? Because I find interesting deals. Yeah. I find that this is a marketplace. Anytime there is a variable that turns off a group of buyers, that means that the other group of buyers might get a better deal. So I think there's plenty of people that are scared of buying a raw Thai Cobb on eBay. And I get it, rightfully so. They are scared because it's easy to lose. Even with eBay's support and, and, and all of the safety guards in the world, I mean, 
it's still a little bit of a gamble. That said, though, I find cards I like on there. I've graded a number, and 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 usually they grade right where they right where I would expect them to be. Um, I I sort of just pick numbers of what I thought the card would cost. I think obviously because most people are going to want graded cards for the big the big boys, those are going to trend to be towards you know PSA ones. But I think for the raw cards, that's going to trend to be towards like a fair good. And I think. I, and I truly believe someone could follow this blueprint and wind up with a set that averages to a grade of 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, you know, somewhere between a one and a two. Yeah. And this is, I think we haven't shared this mantra yet um, just because of the episodes we've done so far, but one of the rules we live by is buy the card, not the grade. And when you're starting out, you can waste a lot of money on cards that are graded nicer than the card actually looks in terms of eye appeal, maybe even in terms of what the actual grade is. So I think it is worth your time at the outset of this to get a good sense of what uh, a fair and a poor card looks like, what a good card looks like, what a very good card looks like, and up and down the list there. So when you see a raw card, um, you know where it would grade. Um, And when you see a slab card, you know if you're getting a better deal because that card looks better than it should. Um, so yeah, I think that, that, that is, you know, probably the best advice you could give to anyone who's just starting out. I think another piece of advice that really goes along with that as a corollary is just, you know, PSA and SGC do a relatively good job. I think the rest of the companies you should be wary of Beckett is pretty good for fifties cards, but makes mistakes for tobacco so your world is basically psa and sgc they make mistakes too who make yeah. plenty of mistakes <laughs> themselves but they're they're yeah, pretty good yeah, i'm not going to yeah. bash them too hard but they've gone through about four generations of different grading schema they have gone from difficult to hard, you know harsh to easy grading at times and you know cards in an old holder will sold differently than cards in a new holder i've seen cards that i know if it were popped and resubbed would get at least a grade less where that one grade less is a lot of money and that just is the nature of the beast no one's going to get no one's going to get it right all of the time um one of the things i really like to do with new collectors is take a picture of a really 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 nice four that i have and then probably the ugliest four that i've ever sold and stick them side by side and just be like these are both psa fours but one card really sucks and one card is awesome yeah because often a card will have a defect that only the person with the most trained eye will see and you as the collector don't particularly care about that to you it's a beautiful card that looks like uh, you know a near mint psa 7 but it's actually a 4 we actually have a card sitting in front of us that kind of looks like that um so yeah buy the card buy the card that looks nice to you buy the card that is going to fit in your set buy the card that's the good value don't worry so much about what the slab says if you're looking to buy cards that are graded by PSA. Um, I have, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't remember what my number is, but about 90% of my set is raw. Mine's over 90, probably close to 96 or 97%. That's probably mine is too, actually, yeah, yeah if I actually crunch the numbers. So it's almost all raw cards. I've never been burned with a, a fake because either the higher end cards that I'll buy, the, the harder cards I'll buy in a slab just to be safe. Um, but you just learn over time what looks right, what doesn't, and what is going to ha- find a good home in your set and what isn't going to fit the bill. Yeah, as Justin said, I, I, I've 
been buying more than most over, say, the last year and a half, and I have had exactly one encounter with a fake that I thought was really, really, really good and got me. And it turned out to be a rebacked card of a rare back, and I wound up doing some surgery, and the back came apart, and eBay refunded my money. Every Everyone was ha- lived happily ever after. Those were the only fakes I've ever seen that were truly, truly, truly that good. And it was because the front was a real card. It was skinned and rebacked. So, yes, there's lots of nefarious things going on in the hobby. It's unfortunate. Wherever there's money, there's going to be scam artists. But I think people overperceive the number of fakes that they are likely to get with a little bit of expertise. Yeah, especially, again, 90% of the cards we're talking about in the monster set have probably never legitimately been faked maybe there's reprints out there but no one is making phonies of these because they're just simply not worth it so you can generally feel you know rest assured you're not going to run into a problem if something seems too good to be true on one of these higher end cards it probably is so there just are be smart right like there are always honus wagner's oh i got this at a yard sale etc on ebay and those are always fake and they always 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 sell for somewhere between 100 and a thousand dollars because people are just it's wishful thinking it is is, it's wishful thinking and like on those fakes they range from horrific to all right i've never really seen an amazing forgery of one of those honus wagners there's always something that's those are targeting for any listeners who are totally new to this you're the target audience for those fakes as people who don't know just getting involved and think they're getting the deal of a lifetime you're probably not yeah and and, and it, it, you know that that's a really good comment because you know at the place this hobby is it's pretty advanced we're not really discovering new errors very often if there's something out there that is that needle in a haystack and over the last year i can think of one item for sure, maybe a second one that at which I can I'll mention was a true needle in a haystack. There are not a lot of too good to be true things that just show up out of nowhere and wind up on eBay. The card that I'm thinking of, um, this was in about March or April. Uh, a Ty Cobb with red portrait, Broadleaf 460 showed up on eBay, and before that card showed up on eBay was a one of one. There was one of them in the world, and this just shows up one day, and it was raw and. It didn't look great. It was a beater. A bunch of people, myself included, thought it was fake. Um, Pretty quickly, the guy got hundreds of messages from every flipper who all was, you know, willing to take some semblance of a gamble. I heard some of the more advanced buyers and sellers were flying over to, I think he was in New England or New York, were flying in to talk to him to see the card in person. This is a, a, a good market. So like if there's something out there that seems like it's too good to be true, people are going to flock on it really, really, really quickly. That card wound up being real. It is in an SGC holder, and then it sold at REA for like seventy or eighty thousand bucks. Yeah, I think you know you can get lucky and find a thousand dollar card for five hundred dollars. That happens not infrequently if you're in the right place at the right time on eBay. Uh, you know, in the morning or late at night when other people aren't around. Those are some tips of the trade. Um, but yeah, you can get deals. But if something is truly, truly an outstanding deal like that, that seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, Jay, do you want to maybe recap? kind of where we are, what people, you know, what they just listened to. Yes. So, so Justin and I have been rambling on for a while here. Basically we've sort of gone through, um, a $25,000 salary cap and how to allocate that money to 520 cards. And we've started at the top and, you know, we've discussed how, 
a big portion of that is going to wind up with very few players. And then we've sort of gotten to the bottom of the pyramid, which is, you know, 370 $20 cards, of which a few of them might wind up costing you 20 25 30 just because they're tougher. But, you know, this is a blueprint on how to build the set. And I think the goal for this episode in our mind is just to take at least one or two people who don't feel like they can build the set because it's too daunting, just sort of humanize it to say, this is a project that you can do. It seems like this crazy big project for only rich people, but this is a project that every uh, every collector really can undertake and succeed with a modest to large amount of money and a lot of time. Well said. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to The Monster Podcast. Don't forget to check us out online at themonsterpodcast.com and on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you next time.